Amen. Would you stand with me this morning as we're going to dive into our message and we're going to be in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of John chapter 21 and we're going to start in verse 19. This morning we're going to look at a series of encounters that happened with Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And the first of these takes place whenever he's meeting with his disciples. We've been in this series where we've been looking at how if God is for us, who can be against us? And today we're going to discover that he was raised for us. So let's dive right in. And it says this, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands in his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we ask and invite you to speak to us through your word. God, I pray that this would be an Easter unlike any other. That fresh and anew, you would speak to us today. That we would hear from heaven, that you would open up your word to us. And that God, this morning that lives would be changed as we encounter you, the resurrected king. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right. Before you grab a seat, would you turn to the person next to you? Let them know that they look absolutely beautiful today. And then also <laughs> tell them the thing you're most excited to eat for lunch. It's such an honor to have you here this morning. And I want to start by talking about coming out of hiding. The beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the resurrected king is it allows us to come out of hiding. I want you to think back to me with me whenever you, you were a kid. Can we bring the house lights up? Just the house lights up. Yeah. Whenever you were a kid, remember that game you used to play hide and seek? Parents in the room, uh, when you first started playing with your kids, they were terrible at it. So bad that it was actually sometimes almost brutal to play with them. You know what I'm talking about? Like I remember whenever I first started playing with my kids, they didn't fully get it because they were like way too young for it. And so... Jason, um, he thought if he just sat on the couch with covers over top him, that there was no way that I knew that he was underneath of it. Calvin, my youngest, he took it the next step. And his thinking was, if I can't see dad, dad can't see me. So he would just sit on the couch like this, <laughs> right? And it, it, it is mine. He's sitting here thinking like, well, I can't see dad. So there's no chance I'm hidden really, really good. But what I found is this, is that the longer... We play the game of hide and seek, and the longer and the more we hide, the better we get at it, right? Uh, for instance, my, my children, they, they're now advanced level ninjas. Um, what started with, you know, just sitting on the couch with a blanket over top of them has turned into my oldest. Um, he found a way to wedge himself between the wall and the bed that was like uh, maybe, in my mind, it was like three inches. Somehow he... <laughs> He found a way to cram himself down there, put the blanket over top so that I couldn't even remotely see him. Uh, my daughter, she's got like a hideaway bed that goes underneath her twins. She snuck in between both of those, pulled the blanket over top, and then put a sleeping bag there so that there's no chance. But my youngest, he's the one who scared me the most. I was searching for him so long, I was terrified that he had snuck outside somehow. I'm outside looking around the yard screaming, Calvin, because if there was any one of my kids that would get lost, it's Calvin, right? <laughs> he would totally just leave me in the dust. But I'm sitting here and I'm looking everywhere that I possibly can for him. See, as they got older, the game for me got harder because they got better at hiding. And the truth is this, is the older we get and the more that we do, the better we become at hiding as well. And that's not always a good thing. You know, there's reasons why we hide. There's typically two reasons. One, it's fear because of something that we've done or fear of something that could happen to us. 
when kids get scared or whenever they're, you know, they've trained firemen that if like there's a fire in the house to make sure to check underneath beds for the kids because what happens is as the kids encounter fear of what's going on, their natural instinct is to hide underneath of it. The same is true for us. Whenever we've hurt someone, Whenever we've done something wrong, whenever we, we've sinned, whenever we've said something evil or we've gossiped or, or whatever it is, maybe it's you just owe someone 20 bucks and you don't got it on you, <laughs> right? And you're walking down the hall and you see them or you do like the, oh, they don't see me, I don't see them. Right? We turn into kids again. <laughs> like, I don't see them, they don't see me. We, we try to hide from that situation. We do this as adults. We get skilled at avoiding that person that we've hurt at all costs. Oh, I, I didn't see that text message. What? You, you, I missed it. <laughs> we do whatever we can. The truth is this. Sin creates hiding because it creates brokenness and separation. The book of Genesis starts off in the most beautiful of ways. God's going and he's creating and everything that he creates, he declares it's good. It's like you've got this master artist He's creating trees and mountains and this beautiful landscape and everything he touches. He's like, it's good. It's good. Until he gets to man who's alone. And he says, the only thing that's created that's not is the fact that Adam is alone and he creates Eve. And then them together is now very good. You see, he creates them to be representatives of his image and his likeness and his nature and his character. But the problem is this, is that Adam and Eve, they're a lot like us. It says this in Genesis chapter 3, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. The only thing God said not to do, do not eat of this tree. They instantaneously, they rebel against his authority, they rebel against his character, and we see sin enter the world. But what I want you to do as we read this this morning, I want you to listen carefully to Adam and Eve's reaction as sin enters into their life. I want you to watch, maybe with me for the first time ever, watch the hiding that takes place. So she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. They covered themselves. Then the man and the woman, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid, so I hid. Do you hear all that language? As brokenness entered into the world, hiding naturally happened. Adam and Eve, first, they hide themselves from themselves. Where they were naked and unashamed beforehand. Now suddenly when they looked in the mirror, we, they, they resembled a lot like this. Like there's times whenever I look in the mirror and I'm just like, what happened? <laughs> you know, it's like one of those days and you're like, oh, man, <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments. But before that, there was no shame. There was no, like there, there was nothing that they kept from themselves or from each other. They were completely and fully vulnerable with each other. But as sin entered, so too did shame and brokenness. And now suddenly, Adam and Eve are like, there's parts of who I am I no longer want you to see that I need to keep hidden from you. But also now there's parts of me that I'm ashamed of that I need to keep hidden from myself. And then as they heard God walking in the cool of the evening, which was a common thing, they would walk with him. They would talk with him. They spent perfect relationship with him. When they heard the presence of God, instead of like every day prior to that, their heart leaping for joy, like I cannot wait to be in his presence, suddenly terror, fear, because sin creates hiding. And so they tried to hide from God, which is honestly one of the funniest things ever. Can you imagine Adam just hiding behind a bush? Like thinking that God doesn't know that he's there. God's like, hey, Adam, where are you? Right? <laughs> you know, it's like one of those moments. He's like, and Adam's like, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm over here. As he's hiding behind the bush. 
See, the thing is this. Our immediate response to sin is fear. It's hiding. The great question that we all end up having that we're left with is what will and what can God do with my sin that has caused this hiding? What can God do with my brokenness, with my shame? What can God do with the pieces of my life that as I hold them, they don't look like much? This is the great question that we all have. What will God do with my sin and brokenness? The disciples, it's important for us to realize they had those same questions as well. And at Jesus' resurrection, today we're going to find three encounters. And we're going to see how the resurrection brings life to these questions. We're going to see how the risen king can speak life and bring hope to our brokenness. Because the resurrection beckons us to come out of hiding and into healing. You see, because the resurrection... It's the word that brought creation to life at the resurrection. It speaks again. The Bible speaks of Jesus and it says that he was the word made flesh. The word that brought creation into existence. And whenever he breathed again on that resurrection day, he speaks and he breathes life into all who will come to him still. And that's to you and that's to me. So let's look at how he does that. Number one, Jesus speaks peace into our fear. The first encounter we're going to find is Jesus. He appears to his disciples. In order to understand this, we've got to understand climate. Um, think of it this way. How many of you have ever walked into a room where you could feel the climate? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Like there's two. Number one, I, at the, the Muncie campus where I used to work for quite a while, um, there was a few staff members who in the dead of summer would be running their heaters. That's insanity, folks. <laughs> like, I, I would be sitting at my cubicle, and I would look over at the thermostat, and the heat wouldn't even be on, and it would be like 78 degrees in there, and I'd be looking at them going, okay, we got to do something or it's about to get awkward in here. <laughs> I am dying in this corner, right? You, you can walk in, and you can feel the heat of that room, but it's not just the feeling of heat. Well, you can feel when there's tension in the room, right? You ever walked into a room, and you've not even heard a sound yet, not a word. Not a single thing anyone has said, but you can feel the tension in the air, right? Maybe it's you walked into a gas station and there was just an argument like between the clerk behind or whatever, and you're just like, I don't know if I want to be in here, and you're just slowly walking backwards, right? <laughs> or you're over at a friend's house and there's like a family spat that's been going on, and like as you're walking up to the door and you open the door and you see the faces of the people, you can feel the tension in the air, no one's even said a word, and you're like... Hi, guys. <laughs> right? you, you can feel the climate in the room. Listen to me. The disciples are in a room, and they're full of fear. That's what the text tells us this day. The women who have already seen Jesus alive, they've rushed to the disciples, and they've told them, our Savior's alive. But they don't believe it. And they don't believe it because they're bound in their fear. See, Jesus appears to a room that it says that the, these, these men, they're terrified. They're terrified of what the Jewish leaders could do to them if they found them. They know, they've witnessed, they've just watched what's happened to Jesus. They're fearful to even trust, like to even allow a slimmer of hope to enter their heart that he really could be alive. Because their hopes have already been crushed once and they don't want it to happen a second time. There might be someone in here this morning that like there's a part of you that's hungering from God for, for God, but there's also a part of you that's like, I don't want to get my hopes up again. I don't want to have it crushed. Can I tell you something? The beauty of Easter is that Jesus speaks peace into our fear. He arrives in the room and what's the first thing he says to the disciples? Peace be with you. Each one of them, they thought that they had failed Jesus. You've got Peter in the corner who has denied him three times. You've got all these men that whenever he was arrested in the garden, they tucked their tail between their legs and they booked it. 
They had left, they had abandoned him. Many of them weren't even there for him whenever he needed them to be the most. And yet Jesus arrives on the scene and the first thing that he says to them is he clears the climate of the room. It's full of fear, it's full of doubt, it's full of brokenness, it's full of disbelief, anger, frustration, sadness, and hopelessness. But he says two things to them. He says, peace be to you. You see, they had been hiding in fear and Jesus speaks peace. The question is, how can he do that? You see, on the cross that we just celebrated at Good Friday, some of Jesus' final words, many translations say it this way, it is finished. But it was actually a single Greek word that meant paid in full. It was a legal term. So if you appeared before a court and you owed lots and lots of money and someone came in and they paid your debt completely in full, the judge would stamp upon that and say, tetelestai, paid in full. It was a legal term that said that your debt is 100% completely cleared. And so as Jesus, when he's on the cross, he says this as a legal term for you and for me, but it's in a declaration over your sin and mine. He is saying to you, for all who come to me, the debt is paid in full. And in exchange, you now have peace with God. You see, we were enemies. But at the cross, Christ took our place so that we could become friends. He speaks against fear because he conquered death. Jesus can speak peace because of what he accomplished. Mercy meets us at the cross, but grace meets us at the resurrection. You see, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. You and I, we deserve the cross. We deserve punishment for all the wrongs that we've done. But Jesus stepped into our place and he absorbed all of that to himself. And at the resurrection, what he is saying to you and me today is that the life that we haven't earned and that we don't deserve, that he now lives, he gives to you and to me as well. Just as his death put a final word to your sin, Jesus' resurrection puts a final word to your future. He says, you will have life in me. His death declared the penalty that was due and it was poured out upon him, but his resurrected body declares life that we don't deserve and we could never earn that is still poured out to you and me through Christ. The second thing that Jesus did, we read on in John chapter 20. This happens right afterwards. Jesus speaks hope into our doubt. I want to read to you from uh, an encounter right afterwards. And it says this, now Thomas also known as Didymus, one of the 12. So he's one of the closest followers of Jesus. He was not with the disciples in the previous encounter we were just reading when Jesus came. So the other disciples, they go to him and they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. So the doors were locked and Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, notice again, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet Jesus speaks hope into our doubt. This encounter should bring us some encouragement. Because Thomas doubts, so do we. This is no fictional story. These are the men that should have been the first to believe. When word reaches them that their Savior has risen from the grave, if there's anyone on earth who should instantaneously get behind it, it's the people that for three years Jesus has been going hey by the way I'm going to be delivered to the chief chief of priests and, the, and the, all the leading religious leaders and I'm going to be handed over to die but in three days I'm going to rise from the dead he's been telling this to them till he's blue in the face and they're still not getting it if you're a parent you understand that <laughs> right 
pick up your clothes, pick up your clothes, pick up your clothes. I told you, when did you ask me to pick up your clothes? Let's see. Five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, and 20 minutes ago. You know, <laughs> it's one of those things, right? If there's anyone who should be understanding this, it's the disciples. Jesus appears to the 12, but that's really the 11 because Thomas isn't there. And they come to him and they're like, we've seen the Lord. Listen to me. Thomas today should give you encouragement. Because this is not a fictional story. These are real people. With real wounds. With real doubts. Who are struggling to comprehend the fact that Christ had rose from the dead. Thomas looks at them and he's like, you know what, guys? I, I love each of you dearly, but I, I, I don't believe it. Peter's like, all of us saw him. <laughs> you know? And Thomas is like, that's cool, but I didn't. And until I see him, until I see the Savior that I, that I saw die with the nail prints in his hands and in his feet and the spear that went into his side, I, I'm struggling, guys. I'm struggling. You know what I love? Jesus shows up and he doesn't reprimand Thomas. He meets Thomas in his doubt by offering him hope. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you've grown up in church or you've grown up around church and you've heard about this whole resurrection thing and you're like, you know, I've just, I've got some, I've got some doubts. Can I tell you something that Jesus is ready to meet you today, right in the midst of your questions, right in the midst of your wounds, to offer you hope? Because this is what I have personally found, is that doubt often takes place when we've been wounded. You see, Thomas knows that Jesus has died and he doesn't want to believe a false report. He wants to know that it's real. And it's important to note Thomas's words and Jesus's actions. He wants to encounter the real thing. And I want you to notice how Jesus arrives. He looks at him and he says, come examine my wounds. You see, doubt often comes from wounds and pain. Jesus met Thomas in his doubts, but he met him with his Jesus's wounds. As if to say, I understand you've been wounded, so have I. It was about a year and a half ago. Um, I was making a, a trip to Bull Hospital as pastors. We do a lot of pastoral visitation when it's not COVID. Um, <laughs> we like to go out and pray with people before surgeries and things like that. And it was a Saturday, and I was getting ready to go to a youth basketball game and see um, one of my teens be, be playing. And... Uh, so I'm, I'm in a rush. I'm trying to get into the hospital quickly to go visit a few patients and then get on the road to go see this basketball game. And as I run up to the counter to like check the hospital rooms because hospitals love to move people on us. So we'll show up in a room, get ready to pray for someone that's a complete stranger. And we're like, well, hello. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so I, I'm double checking the room numbers. And, and um, as I'm walking up, it's one of those tension moments, right? You can feel there's tension in the air. You don't know exactly what's going on. And there's a lady um, behind the desk uh, and uh, she, she's looking at me, and, and I can tell there's something going off to the side. There's, like, these two young adult women over here, and I know something's happening, but I don't really know what. So I give her my two patients' names, and she's typing them in, but the whole time she's, like, looking over there, right? And so finally the one lady, one of the two young adult ladies over here looks at me, and she goes, tell them. Tell them. And I go, tell them what? <laughs> and she goes, tell her there's no proof for the existence of God. And I went, are you willing to talk about this? <laughs> and she goes, what? I go, well, would you be willing to have a conversation about this? And she goes, who are you? And I went, well, my name is Josh Johnson, and I'm a pastor. And the lady behind the desk went, sweet Jesus, thank you so much, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I kid you not, it was a phenomenal moment, right? And so... <laughs> So I, I walk over to the ladies and we start a conversation and like instantaneously, like there's walls that are up there, like, like who, you know, and, but I, I, I'm being kind. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm engaging their doubts and I'm showing them that there's absolute proof for the existence of God in like a way that makes sense to them, not just using scripture, but using reason and history because I actually have my degree in history. And as I'm walking through this, 
I'm, I'm like, I know that I still got to go pray with my patients. So I told him, I'm like, listen, I would love to continue to talk to you. I need to go visit some people. But if you'd be willing, as soon as I come back down here, I'll talk to you some more. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in my mind, I'm going like, they're going to blow me off. So I go up to the rooms and I do my prayers and I come back down and they're waiting for me. We start talking some even more. And I don't know where the Holy Spirit just kind of speaks to me as I'm, we're getting into the nitty gritty. And I looked at the one girl and I looked at her and I went, who hurt you? somewhere along the line someone in the church has hurt you deeply and you have a deep anger towards God she just instantly started crying just sobbing in the lobby of law hospital and I looked at her and I said please accept on my behalf a sincere apology and I'm sorry Jesus loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine I'm sorry for the person who hurt you but let me remind you that the real king loves you deeply. You see, doubts often come from wounds. And Jesus on that day, he meets with Thomas who's been wounded because he's watched the person he loved most die. But please hear me today. Listen to me. Jesus didn't come with some just happy, cheery, go lucky words. He arrives on the scene with real wounds that he has still chosen to keep. Because he's looking at Thomas and he looks at you and he looks at me as if to say, listen, I understand your pain. The king that you serve is not a king who is distant from your pain. It's not a king who blows it off as it's not important. He's not a king who acts like it didn't happen. He is a king that says, I understand everything that you've went through and I've went through it too. I've been betrayed. I've been abandoned. I've been forgotten. I've been rejected. I've been spit upon. I've been mocked. I've been tortured to death, but I did it because I love you so much that in the midst of your pain, I want to be near. The resurrected king looks at you and he says, let me speak hope into your doubt by myself entering your situation, by I want to enter the pain with you. Today, maybe you need to hear the resurrected king speak hope into your doubt. Can I tell you something? Listen to me. Your pain has not been lost to him. He will never minimize it, nor will he ever blow it off. He is with you even in the midst of it. I understand it, he says. I understand your doubt. But Jesus also says, I'm stronger than both because I've conquered death. Jesus speaks life into death. John chapter 21 encounters one of the greatest stories in all the Gospels. It's Peter being restored. You see, the story goes something like this. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, Peter, who's typically the loudmouth of the bunch, I'm not going to say if there's any of you in the room that would fit that, but <laughs> he's that friend in the group of friends that's like always quick to stick his foot in his mouth, and you're like, Peter right? Well, Peter's always the brave one. He's the one who wanted to like walk on water with Jesus. And he's always doing this kinds of thing. Um, the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, he reminds them again that he's going to be crucified and that he's going to die for them. And Peter's like, I, I would never leave you. Never. I, I would follow you even into death. And Jesus looks at me and says, Peter, before this night's over, you're going to deny me that you even know me three times. And Peter's like, I would never. And Jesus is like, before the rooster crows, you will. What does Peter do? Denies him three times before the rooster crows. In fact, the rooster crows, and it says that Peter basically is sitting there, and he's weeping bitterly because he realizes he's done this. In Peter's mind, it's over. There is nothing worse he could have ever done. There was nothing else that he could ever even remotely. In his mind, his hope of ever being used by God was put to death. In Peter's mind, I, I, I've rejected him. I, I, I've pushed him to the side. Like, there, there's no hope anymore for me. I want to believe in him, but like, he can't use this. In his mind, his spiritual ministry is dead. See, Peter was a fisherman before he was a disciple. He was a pretty good one, other than two days. The first day that Jesus called them, they were out in the lake. 
And in case you don't know that God's got a sense of humor, he absolutely does. <laughs> a group of fishermen were out on the lake, and they'd been fishing all night long. Some of you are skilled, skilled with casting and uh, catching some fish. I am not. They evade me like the plague. Um, they were good. Spent all night long, hadn't caught a single fish, right? And so that morning, they look over to the side, and Jesus is there, but they don't know who he is just yet because this is the first early days of their ministry. And Jesus looks at him, and he's like, hey, have you caught anything? You know how there's like that backseat driver? This is like one of those moments. They're like, oh, great, there's a dude at the shore who thinks he knows something, right? You know, and so Jesus is like, hey, how about you cast your nets on the other side of the boat? And they're like, yeah, we haven't caught a single fish all night long. The other side of the boat's going to work real well, Right? <laughs> But they do it, and they catch so much, their boats start to sink. Fast forward three years later, they've abandoned their nets. They've abandoned their boats. They've been following Jesus. Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. He's speaking to his disciples again. Everyone's starting to get excited, everyone but Peter. Because in Peter's mind, it's really great that Jesus is alive. But I failed It's great that he can do things for other people, but I'm, I'm pretty much done for. It says this, that on that day, Peter looked at his disciple friends and he said, hey guys, um, I'm going fishing. Can I tell you, that's one of the saddest lines in all the gospels. Because what Peter was saying is, I'm going back to my old life. I'm going back to what I know. Going back to what I used to do before Jesus. I'm going back to my previous trade because he can't use me. So they go out on the boat and he convinces a couple of the other disciples to go with him. (laughs) And it happens again. (laughs) All night long, no fish. Right? Jesus is on the shoreline, the resurrected king. He's sitting there, and he's cooking some fish in the fire that Jesus has caught, but they can't. They don't even know it's him. They're out on the boat. They look at him. They see someone at shore, and it's just like day one. Jesus calls out, and he goes, hey, you catch anything? And Peter's like, no. (laughs) How about you try the other side of the boat? And suddenly, you're talking about deja vu, right? You're like, what is going on? And they do it. And instantaneously, they catch so much fish. Peter realizes who it is on the shore. It says he jumps off the boat. He starts swimming because he knows, I got to get to Jesus. And when he gets there, there's a charcoal fire. And this is important to know because uh, because Peter denied Jesus around a charcoal fire. Jesus has recreated the exact setting that he abandoned God. And he looks across him at this fire and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he asks Peter, do you love me three times because Peter had denied him three times. Listen to me. Listen, Jesus speaks life into Peter's death. He's saying, you thought you were finished, you're not. I declared over you that you would be a rock I declared that you would be used for my kingdom. I have not given up on you. Listen to me. Someone in this room today, you feel like God has given up on you, and I'm here to tell you he hasn't. You're here saying, you know what? Man, I've got a charcoal fire in my past. I've got a moment in time where I did this or I did that fill in the blank, and I feel like God has abandoned me and that I can't be used. Can I tell you something? Listen, the resurrected king's got a little bit of a sense of humor. And he's saying to you, I'm not done with you. I'm here to speak life into your death. I'm here to speak hope into your future. Jesus wants to resurrect in your heart what you thought was dead. He wants to provide spiritual CPR. And CPR Breath is input into a body that is starting to stop breathing and die. And then the person pumps to keep the heart going. Do you realize that's what Jesus is here today to do? To breathe life into your death and to if you will allow him to put your heart in his hands and let him mold it to 
make it look like him. See, those who've been brought back from the dead, who've been resuscitated, they have a completely different outlook on life. You talk to people who have stared death in the face and suddenly something's different. There's a definitive moment that they can look back to and they can remember, I was dead, but now I'm alive. Spiritually, that's what Jesus does all the time. They see things differently. They live differently now. Jesus' resurrection brings a spiritual resuscitation. He brings life back into dying bodies. Jesus conquered the death to prove beauty can emerge from even the greatest of evil. You see, we just celebrated Good Friday. It's a day that seemed hopeless. It seemed like evil had won. Jesus hangs on the cross. The death of Jesus seemed at the moment like good would lose and evil would win and that all of hope had evaporated from the earth. But then Sunday came. Sunday came and it changed the story. As breath entered his lungs, the risen king proved beauty can come from tragedy. That the very thing in your story you are most ashamed of, God can turn that into a beautiful thing. Many of you in your homes or maybe tattooed on you or somewhere, there's a shape of a cross. Why do we do that? Why would we put a cross anywhere? That's like putting an electric chair, like hanging an electric chair from your, your, like a necklace. The cross was the greatest form of human torture, and it was the capital punishment where they murdered people. Why would we ever use that as design and beauty? But can I tell you something? Christianity, we look at the cross and we see beauty. We see that shape. We see that symbol. We see that emblem, and our hearts flutter a little bit because we're a reminder of what our Savior did. Listen to me. If Jesus can turn the cross, Rome's most feared punishment, into something beautiful, what can he do with your life? If he can take a device meant for torture and turn it into something of beauty, don't tell me that he can't take your most ashamed of thing and go, watch me. The resurrected king, he looks at you and he's like, just give me your life. Let me turn it into something beautiful. The king has come to speak life into the things that you thought were dead. Luke 24, verse 26, it says this, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. You're not going to find life reexamining your past, rehearsing your mistakes, or reliving your sin. Don't go looking for life among the dead. No, instead, we find life, we find hope by looking for the king among the living. Because your king is alive, and he is alive forevermore. You see, Jesus was raised for you. Jesus was raised to free you from fear. Jesus was raised to meet you in your doubt. And Jesus was raised to bring life into your death. You want to come play? You're just behind me. Maybe today you're Thomas. Maybe today you're here and you're saying, you know what, Pastor Josh? I came because it's Easter. But I've got some doubts. And they're real. There's a part of me that really wants to believe. There's a part of me that wants to put my trust in this, this Jesus, this King you talk about, but, um, but I'm wounded. I've been hurt deeply. Can I tell you something today? Um, the King of Kings is here to meet you right where you're at. He's not scared of your doubts. He's not fearful of your questions. He's come to step into the midst of them. I love it. Whenever Jesus meets with Thomas, it's not like he looks at him and he's like, hey, dude, I've been with you for like three years telling you what's going to happen. 
He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't, like, make Thomas feel bad for his questions. He doesn't sit there and, like, rip into him. Instead, he appears in the room, and what does he do? I, 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 it says he says, peace be with you. But I just wonder if, if he didn't, in that moment, lock eyes with just Thomas. He's already said peace to the rest of the disciples. In that moment, I wonder if he enters the room and he just stares Thomas right in the eyes and he's like, peace be to you. I'm here. You see, Thomas' soul was full of turmoil. He so wanted to believe that Jesus really was alive, but he had put so much hope thinking that like he was going to come and be an earthly king, didn't realize that Jesus had come to die for his sins. And then whenever he's raised from the grave, it's like, I don't want to get my hopes up again. But as he sees Jesus, this is what I love. Jesus invites Thomas to examine his wounds as if to say, Thomas, come look. Stick your finger where the nails went through my flesh. I'm real. I'm alive. And not only that, Thomas, I know your wound. I felt it. Some of you, you're here today and you're just wondering, God, do you really know the pain I've been through? Jesus invites you to examine his wounds today. Because he's the wounded healer. It's from his wounds that we find healing. He's looking at you and he's looking at me and he's saying, I love you so much. I wanted to be associated with you in the midst of your pain. I wanted to be present with you in the midst of your pain. I want you to know that I'm real and that I'm good and that I'm there for you. Maybe you're Thomas. Maybe today you're one of the disciples and you just, you feel like because of your past that God's angry with you. Pastor Josh, if you really knew what I've done and where I've been, you would know that there's just no way that God could ever, like, he, he's, he's got to be angry with me. That first encounter, Jesus stepped into the room to a man full of fear, and he says, peace be with you. You thought you'd failed me. You thought that you've made countless mistakes. You thought I was done with you. Peace be with you. Today, Jesus is wanting to speak peace to all who will come to him. Or maybe you're Peter. I've been Peter. I've been at the end of my past, at the end of my rope, at the end of my going, God, there's just no chance you can take this life and use it for anything. There's no way. Be careful what you tell a resurrected person what they can and can't do. Because <laughs> death tried to say that over them too. Death tried to say, you'll never breathe again. And Jesus went, oh, really? Oh, death, where's your sting? You see, the resurrected king, he wants to look at you today. He wants to look deep into your heart. He wants to look at those places that you thought that you were dead and that there's no hope. And he wants to speak. Listen to me. Jesus was raised for you. He loves you so much. Jesus said that all who will come to me, all who will find themselves and place themselves in me, will have life and life more abundantly. The offer on the table is not just heaven. Listen to me. Heaven is well and good, but heaven would be empty and void without Jesus. The beauty is not streets of gold. Listen to me. The point that the, the author of Revelation is talking about when it's talking about streets of gold, listen to me. The things that we think most valuable in this life become concrete. Wealth and power and fame, Jesus is like, cool, I use it as pavement in my kingdom. Because the most beautiful thing is me. And I'm going to give you me, all of me, every part of me. And I will be there for you. I'll be with you in your pain like I was with Thomas. I'll be there with you in your fear like I was for the disciples. And for someone here today, I'll be there with you like with Peter. And he's looking at you today and he's saying, do you love me? Notice he did not go to Peter. He did not go to Peter and be like, "Hey Peter, are you sorry? Are, are you ready to just like sit here and bawl and cry and try to like try to prove your love for me?" No. He looks at Peter and he goes, "Peter, 
do you love me? Do you want to come home? Do you want to repent of your past and your brokenness? And do you want to come home? And Peter's like, I love you, Lord. And he asks him three times as if to say, you denied me three times. You've showed me you love me three times. And then he says, go. And he uses Peter. And Peter, not even a few days from then, he's going to stand up on the day of Pentecost. And he's going to preach in front of 3,000 people. And they will come into the kingdom of God because of his message. The man who went back to fishing thinking he could never be used, God uses to preach and see 3,000 people come into the kingdom. Today is your Easter. It's the day that God wants to breathe life back into your heart. Because you associate yourself with him. He wants to breathe life into your dead bones. But you have to let him. You have to let him. Would you stand with me this morning? Worship team, if you want to come to the stage. And we're going to bring the lights down. I'm just going to ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just as in that room with the disciples that Jesus was present. Can I tell you something? He is here today. Scripture tells us that wherever two or more are gathered in his name, he is there. He is enthroned on the praises of his people. His presence is in the room. His healing power is in the room. His resurrecting power to resurrect lives that have been far from him is in the room. And today the king is looking at you. And he's looking at me and he's looking at our hearts and he's saying, will you come home? Will you trust me with your fear? Will you trust me with your doubts? Will you allow me to speak life into what you thought was dead? The king is here. He's present. He loves you. Today is meant to be a day of a celebration of life as we remember what the king has done. Father, I pray for every heart right now that is in this room. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move and that you would speak, that you would breathe life and hope, that you would set hearts ablaze, that, God, you would rewrite stories, that you would change lives, that, God, you would erase shame and speak hope. Jesus, we pray that in this house that you would do what you always do, that you would save, that you would heal, that you would resurrect and you would restore. and every eye closed and no one looking around. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what, Pastor Josh, I want Jesus to speak life into my death. I want him to speak hope into my doubts and I want him to speak peace into my fear. Maybe today you've never made a choice to follow after Jesus. Or maybe you have, but that was in the distant, distant past. And you've been living a little bit like Peter. You've been living far from his presence, feeling separated from him because of your brokenness. And you've kind of ran into hiding away from him instead of running close to him. And today you want to rededicate your life. Say, God, I want my life from this day forward to once again be pursuing you. God, I, I want to chase after you with every ounce of who I am. If that's you, with no one looking around and every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're saying today, I want to make that choice, would you do me a favor and just lift your hands so that I can be praying with you this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Father, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You reign supreme on high. Jesus, we pray that in this moment, in this place today, you would draw hearts to you. I want to close this way and we're going to have each of us repeat this prayer out loud. I want to be clear. Prayer does not save a single person. Saying a set of words does not create a magical thing that happens. What what saves you is what's happening at the heart level. If you pray and repeat after me these words and you mean it from the core of your heart, saying, God, I want you to be my Lord. I want to turn from my past. I want to trust you with my future. I confess my sins. I realize that I have lived in rebellion against you, but I want to live for you, Jesus. If you pray this prayer and you mean that, listen to me, today you cross over from death to life. Today, what scripture tells us is happening is that a celebration happens in heaven, that the angels are rejoicing with us. And so I want to, as we lead this prayer, if you mean this from your heart, listen to me, something is happening at your heart level. You are allowing Jesus to speak life into death once again. So if you will repeat after me, dear Jesus, today I make you my Lord. I make you my Savior. I ask that you would speak life into my death. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've made many mistakes. But today, I trust that when you died on the cross, you paid the penalty for every sin. And that when you rose from the dead, I have life in you. Jesus, today, I make you my Lord. Would you save me? And make me more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Can we give a shout of praise to the Lord today? If people praise you, Jesus. Praise you, God. Listen to me. If you made that choice today, I would love to personally pray with you and give you one of these books. We have these books across the front. They're called First Steps of Grace. It'll walk you through the beginning steps of your journey before you leave. If you would just let me know you made that choice, I want to rejoice with you. There's a party happening in heaven. And today as you sing this song, I pray you would sing it with fresh eyes, with your eyes woken in wonder to the reality that your foundation is now the love of Christ, not your sin, not your brokenness, not your past, not anything you've done. The foundation for your future is on what Christ has done. And we have hope in